Ready when you are, Doc. Just another minute, please. Son of a bitch demanded a second podcast. The movie look extra rare. What does he want for breakfast? Some damn thing from Spotify? Good evening, gentlemen. Okay, Doc. Grab your headphones. Same drill as before, please. Ready when you are, listeners. Hello, looters! Welcome to another special episode of The Movie Loot. This is our 10th of these special episodes that drop out every other month, where the loot is a specific scene I love from a film I love. I take that scene, break it apart, analyze it, see why it works. If this is the first time you're listening and this piques your interest, know that we've already done special episodes on Seven, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, not the remake, or the new one, Alien, The Godfather Part 2, and When Harry Met Sally, among many others. So feel free to explore our catalog and check them out. We're getting close to the Oscars, so I was thinking hard of what film and what scene to choose and ended up settling on what is probably my favorite Best Picture winner so far that also happened to be released on Valentine's Day back in 1991, and that's The Silence of the Lambs. Now, there are a thousand scenes I could take on from this film, considering how much I love it, but I'm going to focus on one that used to be my favorite scene from it, and that's Hannibal Lecter's Escape. But first, a bit of background. The Silence of the Lambs is one of those films that I remember seeing a long time ago, even if I don't specifically remember when I first saw it, but it's one of those that's ingrained in my brain and it has been a favorite since. It's the kind of film that every time I see it, I discover new things and fall more in love with it. I think Jonathan Demme did a spectacular job as a director, but the key here are the performances from pretty much everybody, but especially Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins as both Clary Starling and Hannibal Lecter. As a matter of fact, even though this scene I chose used to be my favorite a while ago, a scene that doesn't feature much of Clarice, actually, if you ask me now my favorite scene of the film, I would probably choose any scene with Jodie Foster. From his first meeting with Crawford to his first meeting with Lecter or with Chilton, there is such a meticulous approach from Demi to each of these moments that it's a wonder to see. But this scene I'm going to talk about is more a testament to the film's great craft, direction and editing than it is to the performances. Now be warned, like all my special episodes, this will be an in-depth discussion, so the film will be spoiled. If you haven't seen Silence of the Lambs, we can't be friends anymore, sorry, unless you go watch it. Then you can come back and check this out. As of now, it is streaming free on Hulu, Paramount+, Plus, DirecTV, and Epix. So let's begin. You spook easily, Starling? Not yet, sir. He's past the others. The last cell, I'll be watching. You'll do fine. A killer is on the loose. Keeps them alive for three days. Then he shoots them, spins them, and dumps them. A rookie FBI agent is on his trail. He's got real physical strength, cautious, precise, and he's never impulsive. He'll never stop. But in order to track him down, She'll have to match wits. I'll help you catch him, Clary. Believe me, you don't want Hannibal Lecter inside your head. With the darkest of all minds. Just do your job, but never forget what he is. But he's a monster. Pure psychopath. So rare to capture one alive. 
so close to the way you're gonna catch him. Do you realize that? Oh, Clarice, your problem is you need to get more fun out of life. You told me you don't spook easily. You call this easy, sir? Lester's missing hand arm. Man's a raving maniac. Who knows what he'll do? So, to set things up, The Silence of the Lambs is a psychological thriller released in 1991. The film is written by Ted Talley, based on the book by Thomas Harris, and was directed by Jonathan Demme. The film was a huge box office and critical success, becoming one of the highest grossing films of the year, while also earning numerous awards, including the so-called Big Five at the Oscars, that is Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. The film follows rookie FBI agent Clarice Starling, played by Jodie Foster, who is tasked with interviewing Dr. Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, a former renowned psychiatrist that turned out to be a cannibalistic serial killer and is now in prison. The reason of the interview? Seek his advice to capture another serial killer that goes by the name of Buffalo Bill, played by Ted Levine. The cast is rounded out by the great Scott Glenn, who plays Starling's boss Jack Crawford, as well as Casey Lemons and Anthony Hield, among many others. As things turn out, Lecter wiggles his way out of his prison and into a temporary holding cell under the guise of his alleged advice from where he manages to escape in the scene that we're about to discuss. And to analyze the scene, I'm going to talk about four things. Number one, the setup. Lecter's escape is preceded by the scene I just mocked on the intro, in which you see how Lecter, who had managed to take a pen off Chilton at some point, gets the upper hand on two guards and attacks them. I will get something out of the way first, and it's the fact that this is a movie, and like they say, movies got a movie, there are a good bunch of implausibilities in this scene alone, which I will bring later, but the film works. The execution is so good and the tension so well staged that you don't care about that. The scene is spectacular. So at the end of the scene, we see one of the guards, Boyle, has been beaten to death as we hear the second guard, Pembry, moan in the background. Lecter picks up a knife from the floor and walks towards him. Ready when you are, Sergeant Pembry. And that's all we get. Now, we've already heard the stories about Lecter and how dangerous he is, and we've seen him pretty much outsmart everyone to get where he is, so naturally we're on edge about what he's doing or what he's going to do. He's taken out the guards, so he's obviously gonna walk down and find a way to get past the whole battalion of cops on the lobby. Sounds ridiculous, but we're kinda expecting something close to that, which leads me to my second point, the setting. Lecter is being held on the fifth floor of some sort of building, not sure what it is, but right after we see him dispatch Boyle and Pembry, we cut to the lobby where a bunch of cops are standing guard and all of a sudden, the elevator starts going up to that floor, which puts everyone on alert. And as they're trying to figure out who could it be, we hear shots. What is this shit? Did somebody go up on five? No, nobody went up. Call Pembry, ask him to tell him. CP, shots fired on five, repeat. Shots fired on five. Sergeant Tate! So, obviously, we're on edge. Just like the cops, we're trying to wonder what happened. And then the elevator starts going down. And this is so genius because it forces us to connect the dots. Lecter managed to subdue his guards, now the elevator is going up, you hear shots, and now the elevator is going down. 
so we're obviously expecting him to be coming down. There's such a great use of space here in trying to keep us guessing on where is everybody. Lecter's on five, cops are on first, elevator goes up, then goes down, stops at three. It's excellent. There's also one really small detail, but I know it is so effective. There's a lot of focus on one young cop, Bobby, and right after the elevator starts going down, the sergeant tells him to go get his best. Sergeant Tate! Holy shit. What the hell? Shut up. Bobby, get the vest. Right, Sarge. Brainy, Howard, cover the... Look! It stopped. Seal off a 10-block radius. Give me the SWAT team and an ambulance double quick. Going off the typical action and thriller tropes, this rookie's dead, he's gone. We're obviously expecting something to happen to him, at least we put in some sort of danger. So that's another great thing that the film does to have us on edge. Even though in the end nothing happens to him, we're expecting something to. But anyway, the elevator stops at 3, and I love the guy that plays Sergeant Tate. I had to look him up, Danny Darst, and he's so good because you can see he's going by the book and seems to have everything in control. Seal off a 10 block radius, get me an ambulance, we're going up. The guy is on top of it, and he has a cool ass mustache too. So they head up to the 5th floor and find this elaborate scene with Boyle hanging up from the cell with his entrails out, while Pembry is lying on the floor with his face all messed up. And I think this is as good time as any to segue into my third point, which is the score. The score was composed by Howard Shore, who went on to work with Demi on Philadelphia, but here it's great how he keeps the music off as the cops are scrambling in the lobby, but kicks it up as they head to the fifth floor. And it's such a tense score, and I love how it rises and swells up the moment that they find the dead guards. We're going up. It makes the scene all the more grandiose, but then he turns it off. Shore has said that Demi was very specific about the music and how it should go right into the fabric of the movie, and how we get our feelings from all elements simultaneously, lighting, cinematography, costumes, acting, music, and this is what his score does, along with all those other things. But anyway, after this, we get tons of information dropped on us. Lecter is gone, or so they think. The cop's guns are missing. He might be making a rope, and Pembry's still alive. So there's so many things happening at once, misdirections and whatnot, that we obviously can focus on just one. But the focus quickly goes to the fallen cop, who is approached by the rookie, Bobby. And I love all the things that, on hindsight, really tell us what is going on. But as Bobby kneels by him, trying to figure out what to say to him, how to comfort him, Tate shouts at him, it's Jim Pembry now, talk to him, damn it. 
Obviously, because we find out later, he is not Pembry. Where the fuck is my ambulance? He's alive. Sergeant Tate, he's alive. Get a hold of him where you can feel his hands, son. Talk to him. What do I say? It's Jim Pembry now. Talk to him, damn it. Lecter is missing and armed. Pembry, can you hear me? He took Boyle's gun. Pembry got off one round. There's a chance left was hit. Keep breathing in and out. That's it. You're doing a good job. Oh, you, you look real good there. Yeah, you look as we see SWAT and the ambulance arriving outside, Short gives us a bit of a swell of the score to ramp us up, but not much. But he brings it up again after they take Pembry to the elevator. This is when we get back to the game of where the hell is Lecter, as we see blood dripping from the elevator roof. And it's a great shot, as one of the paramedics is kneeling beside the stretcher, and you suddenly see the drops of blood falling on the white sheet over the body. And this is when Short starts the score again, and will continue to swell up until the big scene finale. But he starts slowly at first, as the camera pans from the blood on the stretcher to the elevator roof, and we see the blood on the hatch, and then to Tate as he radios the others. Which leads me into my fourth and final point, which is the direction and the editing. Demi's use of the camera is so great, the way he puts us in the place of the characters, we're there on that elevator with these people. We're finding out things just as they are. So as this is happening, our focus is not on the guy on the stretcher, but on whoever is on top of the elevator. And as Tate gets everybody out, there's a great shot as he informs the SWAT commander where the camera is held down low, the two are in the foreground, and the elevator indicator, however it is called, is in the background. Which brings me back to what I talked about before about the use of space and how the film wants us to think we're fully aware of where everybody is at every moment. Top three floors secured. Main stairwell secured. We think he's on two. Uh, we're pretty sure he's somewhere on two, sir. That's all for now. Over. So now we cut into the elevator shaft and we see this body lying on top of the elevator with white clothes, which is what Lecter was wearing. The guy is not responding so they shoot him on the leg once, still no response, and all the while we're wondering what the heck is going on. As the SWAT commander on the lobby decides to open the hatch, there's this tension as everybody gets ready and the score starts ramping up as one officer gets on a ladder, opens the hatch, and a bloody body slumps down. But just at that moment, they cut to the ambulance. Memphis General, this is Medical Unit 26. We're inbound with a 50-year-old male police officer with severe facial lacerations. Weapon unknown. We've got grand mal seizure activity, but he's post-dictal now. Uh, the vital signs are good. Pressure is 130 over 90. 90. Yeah, that's right, 90. Uh, pulse 84. We got him on lactated ringers running, and, uh, and the uh, patient is on 10 liters of oxygen. 
And I think here's when you really notice the true genius of editor Craig McKay, because you're wondering why the heck are they cutting back to the ambulance? We're seeing the paramedic describing the condition of Pembry, but then we see the body move his hand, and here's when we all go, holy shit. The guy removes his respirator and the mask he was wearing because he was wearing Pembry's bloody face all the time and gets up close to the paramedic who hasn't even noticed what's happening as the score is fully ramped up. And then we cut to Ardelia, Clarice's friend, who drops a phone and starts running down a hallway, presumably because she's been informed of what happened. It's so great that Demi and McKay refuse to show us what exactly happens and these precise cuts as we are figuring out what's happening in the building to the ambulance and to Ardelia just work so perfectly. It's such a great scene, so intense, so nerve-wracking, so well executed from pretty much every aspect that even watching it now several times as I was preparing for this, it puts me on edge. So those are my thoughts on that excellent scene from The Silence of the Lambs. Now, like I said in the beginning, I know there are a lot of implausibilities on this whole scene, like how is Lecter held on one floor of a building with just two guards and no security cameras, even though you have a whole battalion on the first floor, or how impossible it would be for him to stage that whole elaborate scene with the guy hanging on top of the cell and whatnot in so little time without being discovered, which will require him to kill the two guards, open a boil and get his guts out, hang him up on the cell, then cut Pembry's face and wear it, swap clothes with him, drop him down the elevator shaft, fire a couple of shots or predicting the exact actions of cops, SWAT and paramedics. There's a lot of suspension of disbelief required in order to accept that. But like I said before, the film works. The execution is so good and the tension so well staged that you don't care about that. And I have no reserves with this scene. I love it. I think this is one of the best directed and edited scenes on any film. So kudos to Demi, editor Craig McKay, cinematographer Tak Fujimoto, composer Howard Shore and the whole cast involved. And as much as I love that scene, I know that the film is full of excellent moments, performances, scenes, and whatnot. So as usual, I went and asked my friends on Twitter to let me know what is their favorite scene or moment from the film, and this is what I got. My brother, as in my real-life brother, Jorge, at Giovanetti PR, said, Too long ago, but the first encounter, slow, silent camera move, as if it were Clarice, towards Lecter's cell, is epic. I've read that they never met on set, though. And I agree, that whole scene is great, which is what I said to him, the way they build up that first meeting, with all the warnings and rules and stories about Lecter, the picture that Chilton shows her, all that heard before she heads down that dark hallway, it's perfect. And about Foster and Hopkins, as far as I've read, it's not that they didn't meet, but Foster has said that she felt intimidated about him and they didn't speak too much during filming. I read an interview where Foster said Hopkins was, quote-unquote, a little too good at his role. My friend Phil Sagan said, all the scenes where Starling and Hannibal were conversing, and of course, Hannibal's escape. And I totally agree, that's what we talk about it. But about Starling and Hannibal, these are two of the best performances of all time, and it's no wonder they won all the awards. My friend Darren Lundberg at DW Lundberg said, Anytime Demi and Fujimoto show Clarice and Hannibal trapped by societal norms, Clarice constantly competes with men, Hannibal is literally confined because of his uh, dietary habits. Toward the end, they are both photographed behind bars, solidifying them as outsiders. 
and he included a couple of great shots to make his point, which is a great one. And like I said to him, that's probably why they are drawn to each other. They are both being used, which is what Lecter tells Clarice at some point, but are still kept outside of the game, so to speak. Darren added, the visual language of the movie is unparalleled and so undervalued. You said it, my friend. Prison Films at Films Prison said, Worth contrasting the gothic dungeon of silence with the clinical white cell of Manhunter. Also thinking about how the film played into the social construction of the Supermax prisoner. And they included some pictures of masks similar to the one that Lecter wore that have been apparently produced and used on prisoners after the film's release. About the contrast of Lecter's prison, I agree, he's obviously referring to the difference in portrayals and setting from Lecter as played by Brian Cox in Michael Mann's Manhunter, which came out in the 80s, and Hopkins' Lecter here in Demi Silence of the Lambs. And although I like Manhunter a whole lot, I kinda understand the reasoning for the studio to make Red Dragon. I mean, sure, they wanted to make more money off of Hopkins, but the intention to have a more uniform look across all three films, Silence, Hannibal, and Red Dragon, I kinda understand, even if the film ended up being as dull and average as it ended up being. My friend Pete at Middle Class Film Class said, this quote, so weird, LOL, and included a gif of Buffalo Bill when he describes the woman he has kidnapped. Was she a great big fat person? And there's such an awkward, creepy delivery to that. Levine was excellent, and it's a pity that his performance is sometimes overshadowed by lectors. The whole cast was excellent. Alex and the Apocalypse at Real underscore Alex Mac said, when we all agreed that this was a good ending for Dr. Chilton, and included a gift of Lecter's final line. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. Talk about an iconic line and a shilling ending. Love it. And I would like to also give some credit to Anthony Hill's performance as Chilton. What a colossal prick, and he played it beautifully. Finally, Josh from your next favorite movie said, My number one of all time. As great as Hopkins is, I think Foster is a tad better. That Levine as Gump is fantastically creepy. The oh wait is a favorite line and one I quote quite often with my co-host. And I think I kind of agree with Josh about Foster. I've always thought she was great, but her performance is one that has grown on me more and more with time. There's so much nuance and subtlety on that performance. It's easily one of my favorite female performances of all time, if not the favorite. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of The Movie Loot. If you like this breakdown and have any thoughts to share, look me up on Twitter at my personal account at TFCGT or the podcast account at TMML2021. The podcast is streaming free on all the podcasting platforms, so check it out. If any of those platforms allows you to drop a review or a rating, better yet. Let us know what you think and how we can improve. Also, if you want to support the show monetarily to help us keep the show going, go to our link tree and visit our coffee page. Buy us a coffee, black as midnight on a moonless night. Also, stay tuned for my next regular episode, which will come out in the next few days, hopefully. And keep your eyes and ears open for our March episode, where we will talk about the Oscars. We'll be recording that in the next week, so stay tuned. As for now, I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. <laughs>